Yo, yo, welcome to Crypto 101. This is Matthew Aaron. And we're back with another collaboration with Mr. Michael Nye and his Evolvement podcast and Crypto 101. And this episode is coming from our mobile studios in New York City's Blockchain Week. And we brought in Mr. Jameson Lop. And for Mr. Jameson Lop, we had just two questions. One, what is Lightning Network? And two, please tell us about your opinion on Dr. Craig Wright. Jameson wrote a detailed blog with a lot of research with proof that he says proves that Craig Wright is not Satoshi. And we had to ask him about it. But before we get into that conversation, follow us on Twitter at Crypto101Pod or my personal Twitter at MatthewAaron101. Remember, this is not financial advice, legal advice, investment advice, or personal advice. And I want to say thank you to LinkedIn for sponsoring this episode. Now, without further ado, here's Jameson Lop, Michael Nye, and myself. We'll see you after the show. What is going on everybody what is going on i am here with my man matthew and Yo. jameson lop we are doing a co-interview here with crypto 101 and evolvement podcast here at consensus jameson thank you so much for joining man i appreciate it my pleasure jameson uh you've been on crypto 101 a couple of times i think it might be your first time on evolvement uh could you do us a quick 101 on mr jameson lop where to begin well i mean i've i've been in the bitcoin space since it was only a few years old i got interested both from a computer science and a libertarian perspective and uh, went full-time Bitcoin in 2015 where I worked at BitGo doing uh, back-end infrastructure for their enterprise multi-sig wallets did that for three years and then a little over a year ago I pivoted slightly and I'm still in the like private key management and security space but instead I'm at Casa where we're more focused on individual personal sovereignty and helping people empower themselves if anybody's listened to Crypto 101, you could hear Jameson Lop 101 on the show. You could hear uh, how he basically removed himself from society and his whole story with that, which was really uh, good. And his philosophies on anarcho-capitalism and being, um, you know, just early days in the space and uh, computer science and what have you. So there's a lot of good Jameson Lop content. Also, of course, on Lop.net, you have great 101s and about everything you need to know about Bitcoin, the space, you know, in himself and everything is, is on there. So those are great resources. So if you are not knowing what we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about the Lightning Network, Casa Node, what you're working with Casa. Before we go into Casa Node and Lightning Network, how's everybody receiving those uh, papers that you wrote about Craig Wright? I mean, I think that most people found it to be enlightening. Um, not much of what I published was unknown, but it was just spread out all over the place. So mm -hmm. unless you did a lot of your own research, you wouldn't know that stuff. And, you know, I basically just wanted to create a comprehensive article <laughs> that portrayed as much of the evidence as possible and um, clearly yes it is a biased article I'm, I'm trying to steer the user towards one conclusion and what is that <laughs> conclusion uh, well the conclusion is that it's probably not a good idea to trust Craig or anything that he says okay um, but this, the, there's an overwhelming amount of evidence of, of things that he has uh, fabricated over the years and things that have shown that he may not necessarily know as much about this space as he claims to 
can you give us a, just a, just a quick summary of what you found in those and compiled in that group of writings that you put out? Um, I I mean I was researching basically his entire life as far back as I could go. Uh, things that I presented were a number of uh, conflicting statements between things that he has said and things that Satoshi has said. Conflicting data, for example, between sleep patterns of his own activity during the that. Satoshi years was, and Satoshi's activity. Uh, So, you know, just trying to show all of the evidence that makes it seem highly unlikely that a lot of his claims are true. But it's, of course, impossible to completely disprove a negative. So why is that important to you? Uh, Why why don't you just let it go? Yes. Uh, I wanted to let it go for many years, (laughs) and I was really hoping that he would kind of fade away. Um, But just the fact that he has been successful and persistent, um, and I believe that quite a few people have been enamored with him and his personality, that I wanted to put this out there just so that people who bother to do even a little amount of research will be able to find the vast majority of the evidence that's out there. And in fact, don't be too surprised if you see some translations of this article coming out because from my understanding, he, you know, he's been very busy over in Asia. And so we, you know, we want to get the word out over there too. I don't want to keep going on this because we're talking about a different topic, but I'm just really curious about the community reaction to Craig Wright. You know, he got delisted from Binance. He started, then he got delisted from Kraken. He got delisted from all these exchanges. Him and Peter McCormick has a really interesting beef going out, even where t-shirts got printed, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that says Craig Wright is a fraud. Do you agree with all of these steps taken by the community and the way that they're going about this? Or do you think that it should have been a lot more maybe research-based and a lot less hype and back and forth and a drama? I mean, I believe that we're just seeing the chaos of, you know, a sort of anarchic system, uh, you know, voluntary interaction. We're seeing it play out. Yeah, I mean, I I have no issues with it. Um, You know, there will be people who say that this is censorship, yada, yada, yada. But really, like the delisting of assets by private companies is completely up to them. Um, you know, w- whether they do it for more like cold-hearted scientific reasons or because of more emotional things as a knee-jerk reaction to certain characters in this space and their own actions, it doesn't really matter. Uh, you know, morally, they have the right to list or delist anything that they want to. Is this pitchfork democracy? Like, for example, Michael, you got attacked by Twitter uh, about a month or so ago. Um, just so looking at like your past or what have you mm-hmm. and, the, and a mob of people came out against you about some things that you were doing in the past and which we're not going to go into that and a mob of people are now going after Craig is this pitchfork democracy is this a good thing if I guess you believe that the mob is the one making the decision or having a high level of influence on the decisions of these private companies. Mm-hmm. And I think that is harder to discern. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's clear that there is a surge or change in sentiment over the past month or two, um, especially as a lot of the legal actions started happening. A lot of people got really pissed off. But you know, as to whether or not it's the result of the mob's reaction to those or just the fact that like the business owners themselves have the same sentiments as a lot of people in the mob. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the result is the same either way, but it's hard to tell exactly. Part of the issue, I think, is that on some of these exchanges, the criteria for listing and delisting may not be well published or and and even if it is the criteria and i've talked to a number of people who have to think about these things even if you do have criteria it tends to be somewhat vague 
you said vague yeah. and isn't the crypto space blockchain or this whole ethos about transparency so is that vagueness a little bit out of the ethos of what we're doing here in the sense that i mean it's, it's private companies right uh, it, <sighs> and do you think that i guess even better question is like do you think that vagueness is intentional and specifically Ooh. hidden or do you think it's just because they haven't set the right structure no up? it's just because it's hard to set specific metrics uh, mm. for these things and also it's not something that has become an issue that often so where you're still kind of like on the cutting edge of, of I mean it's self-regulation right mm. we are coming up with new ways to self-regulate in this new system so <laughs> there there are a lot of things that standards have not been set mm -hmm. agreed agreed it's really interesting especially with the whole herd mentality of things you know I think that watching and observing all of that happen was just interesting to see the human psychology and how all of it works especially within the community here but moving off of all that subject, can you give the audience a little a basic definition, a basic uh, outline of what is Lightning Network for someone who just has no idea what, what it is? Yeah, I'll, I'll give it a shot. So for a multitude of reasons, it is relatively slow and expensive to transact using a global database where it has to get replicated to everybody in the world. Mm -hmm. And that's the way that blockchains work is you, you create a transaction and it gets propagated to everyone who's running a node on the network. Very, very hard to scale that type of interaction. And in fact, the internet is the same way where the base level of the internet is called ethernet. And when you place data onto ethernet, it just propagates to everyone on the network. Mm -hmm. uh, so if the internet worked like that, we wouldn't be able to do what we're doing right now. We wouldn't be able to stream video and audio content because it would have to pass through everybody else's computer on the internet. Right. And you can't get hardware that can, can handle that. Mm -hmm. It would be extremely limiting as to uh, you know what we could do with the internet. So the way that internet engineers got around that limitation is they created other layers on top of ethernet. And in fact, there's seven different layers to the, the internet technology stack. But it's, uh, I think layers two and three are TCP IP, which are these routing protocols. And what that allows you to do is say, hey, I have some data and I want to send it over to this other person at this other address, mm -hmm. find me the most efficient way of getting it there. Mm -hmm. And so basically those protocols allow you to only send the data through like the smallest number of hops that are required. And that frees up, you know, huge amounts of bandwidth and other resources by ex extremely limiting the bandwidth and resources that actually have to get used to send data back and forth. So going back to what is lightning, uh, the same type of approach is being used on Bitcoin, mm -hmm. where we have layer zero, which is global broadcast your transaction to everyone. Right. And because that can't scale and it gets expensive in a number of different ways, we are creating a second layer that does routing. And so while you're still using the base layer, you are anchoring into Bitcoin using on-chain transactions. Once you then rise up to the second layer, you have new types of addressing and new types of more efficient routing of the data. Mm -hmm. And in this case, data is messages that allow you to transfer value back and forth. But now you get on the second layer network and you say, hey, I want to send 100 Satoshis to someone at this address. 
and the network itself will uh, find a short path for you to do that and you'll be able to send these messages back and forth through only a small number of hops thus you can now transact basically with the only limitation being the latency of the internet itself. So you can potentially do hundreds of transactions per second back and forth, back and forth, depending on the speed of light you know, and how quickly your computers talk to each other because you're only talking to a handful of other computers rather than having to broadcast to tens of thousands of computers and then wait for miners to, to batch up transactions, this, this, yada, yada, yada. This guy said, I'll try. I think he more than tried. I think he nailed it. <laughs> I think it was perfect. And where are we at the current stage of Lightning Network? What capacity does this have for Bitcoin and, and for the, the way that we're transacting with it? Can I add something to that question? Mm -hmm. and, and to that question, I want to say, why Bitcoin? If you have to have a layer two protocol and it might have, like he said, there's maybe a limitation, which you're going to tell us about. Why not just make something different besides Bitcoin? Why are we so infatuated with Bitcoin? Well, a multitude of different reasons. One of them being that Bitcoin is still the biggest player in the game. Um, trying to maintain the aspect of sound money, uh, you know, from one aspect, you know, creating completely new networks is also creating new types of money <laughs> printing. Um, and then it also creates additional friction. And so we want all of this to still be self-contained within the, the same base ecosystem. So mm -hmm. basically you still abide by the rules of Bitcoin. Gotcha. We're just creating new rules for new ways to interact more privately, more quickly. As for like the, the limitations around it, right now it is still fairly early days. Uh, you know, hashtag reckless uh, is, is a real <laughs> thing because there are still uh, a number of cases in which you could lose money if you have like a hardware or software failure. The ability to recover all of your money that is like in lightning channels if you have a catastrophic failure is not yet at the level that I would say it's like production ready. Uh, mm -hmm. And so we, we generally say, you know, if you're going to do stuff on lightning, don't put more money into it than you would like walk around with in your wallet that you would be willing to lose. Makes, makes a lot of sense, you know, and I always like to compare it to like old school banking. So back in the day, I would have to go to the bank on Monday, take out money for the week and take get to the bank on Friday for the mm. weekend. If I spent all my money because I went to the bar on, on Saturday night, I have nothing yeah. for, for a Sunday. So it's like you kind of have to like go to the bank, you know, figure out how much you want to carry around and then, you know, transact uh, responsibly. Would that be a good analogy? <laughs> so uh, like, if you're talking about like funding, funding lightning channels, funding that type lightning of channel, thing. Yes. Yeah, and, and that's another reason why Lightning is still early days is because even in some of the better user interfaces, the, the fact that users even have to differentiate between like on-chain and off-chain funds, I think, is a usability failure. There's a lot of room for improvement there. And we're still at the level where one of the greatest challenges is going to be understanding how to manage liquidity on this new network. It's, all, it's almost going to be more of an economic challenge than I think a technical challenge. And so as of today, a lot of the software is giving you this like low-level detail information about your channels and stuff. And and there's, there's no way that Lightning is going to become a mainstream adopted thing if it requires people to understand channels. It's just the same way that uh, the internet could not have become mainstream adopted thing if people needed to understand like how to plug in their modem and, and configure various aspects of it in order to talk to some remote server or whatever. These days, most of, of the internet technology is plug and play. I mean, you know, you buy a mobile phone and the internet on it just works. Right? You don't have to really do anything other than pay your internet service provider. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about this new layer 
Do you foresee that this is the final solution for scalability and, and, and for in this issue that we face? Or do you think that this is just step one and we're going to have to build other layers into the future? Or is it is it layers or is it innovations on the layer? Yeah, I, I, don't, I, I don't know. Even, that's even, yeah. that's even a better question. It's some yeah. of both. There's There's some theoretical work actually with layers that would exist between the Bitcoin base layer and lightning layer. Mm. And I think a little bit of work with people doing layers above lightning network. Um, and that's the interesting thing about the layered approach is that it does enable permissionless innovation. Uh, and, and as a result, I think greater acceleration of innovation because we're not having to like quibble over consensus related things. Uh, when you're working on different layers, then all you have to do is find one other person who agrees with you to abide by whatever new rules of the protocol uh, you want to come up with. I think that there probably will be more intermediary type of, of layers uh, for scalability reasons. So when I said there's this one work on like a middle layer between the two that I was referring to this idea of L2, which is more around channel management in the sense of multi-user channels. Because the reason why Lightning Network, at least in its current state, is not the end-all solution is that you still have uh, throughput limits with the base chain. And so if you need to make a couple of on-chain transactions in order to open and close uh, these payment channels, and each user probably needs to have at least a few payment channels, you're still limited with regard to how quickly you can onboard and offboard people. Uh, since the Bitcoin blockchain, even if everybody's being really efficient and using SegWit and other techniques, probably not going to be able to do more than like 10 transactions per second on the base chain. However, if we can come up with more efficient ways so that you could, for example, share a lightning channel amongst a thousand users, you know, that's several order of magnitude improvement there. Um, and then there's a variety of other things that people are working on with regard to making the whole on-chain, off-chain thing more seamless where, you know, if you have issues, you can uh, split out money uh, from the off-chain to on-chain and vice versa. Interesting, really interesting. And now a word from our sponsor, LinkedIn. Find out right people for what I do, podcasting, isn't that easy. I mean, where do you even look? Put an ad in the paper, post it on a job board. Hey, wanna work with a podcast? Acquire within? With a lot of people with a lot of varying qualifications, you need something that helps you find the right people for your business. And LinkedIn Jobs does just that. When I was looking on LinkedIn, I actually found podcasting jobs and other ways to get involved with podcasting, customer relations, or growth, or what have you. With more than 500 million active members, people come to LinkedIn every day to make connections, grow their careers, and discover new jobs. And 90% of LinkedIn users are open to new opportunities, but some are just not actively looking. This means LinkedIn Jobs gives you access to an entirely different demographic than anywhere else. LinkedIn Jobs also uses knowledge of both hard skills and soft skills to match people to fit the role that is for your job that you're looking for. You know, things like collaboration, work ethic, adaptability, you know, all those are taken into consideration. So if you're looking for someone to fill a position in your company, why don't post a job today on LinkedIn.com slash crypto and get $50 off your first job post. That's LinkedIn.com slash crypto. Terms and conditions apply. Now, back to the show. For everybody who's listening who is new to Lightning Network and, and even new to Bitcoin, why is this solution needed? Like, why is this important? Well, both scalability and privacy 
And in terms of scalability, some of the things that we get are much cheaper transactions, much faster transactions where you're not waiting for minor confirmations. Uh, it's cheaper transactions because you're not posting data globally. You're only updating data states between a few uh, nodes on the network. Is this going to stay cheap if we have like a big bull, like the 20,000 Bitcoin again? Is it going to stay cheap? And, and so this, I think, becomes more a question of liquidity management. So the economics of transacting on-chain are fairly simple. Mm -hmm. And that is... Uh, you know, we have a certain amount of block weight or block space, whatever mm -hmm. you want to refer to. And when the demand for that amount of data gets exceeded, then we enter into fee market scenario right. where it becomes this bidding war. Right. It can be challenging if you're like trying to predict where that's going. It's fairly simple to understand where mm -hmm. as soon as you go over the limit, you hit like an auction style thing. Right. On Lightning, however, you're not bidding for this global scarce block space. Rather, you are using liquidity across a much more complex network structure. It, you've, I'm sure you've seen the visualizations of the Lightning network. Mm -hmm. of, I mean, Hey guys, TiVo here to tell you about the Ufi Video Lock, a smart lock, a 2K camera, and a doorbell all in one. That's right, three in one for triple the security. It's easy to install. All you need is a Phillips screwdriver, no drilling required. It gives you keyless entry, so no more fumbling your keys when you have your hands full coming back from the grocery store. No more worry about the kids losing a house key. No more worry about a guest losing the house key or forgetting the passcode on your door. And for Airbnbers, it's a no-brainer as you can change the passcode at will between renters. It has available fingerprint recognition and it has AI self-learning chips. So the more you use it, the more accurate it's going to be. You will have no anxiety with the battery charging. It is a rechargeable battery and it lasts around four months. But don't worry, when it's low, it'll give you plenty of weeks notice. And also, it always comes with a physical key as a backup. There's no monthly fee. Unlike other brands that charge you a monthly fee to get your backup recordings, they're always recorded locally and you will always have access. Customer support for the Eufy Video Lock is 24-7, so you don't have to worry about any issues you have. And it comes with an 18-month warranty. What I love about this product is it is truly all-in-one. With the three-in-one, you don't have to go out and buy multiple parts. It's all in this package with the Eufy Video Lock. So if you're interested in learning more, go on Amazon and search Eufy Video Lock. That's E-U-F-Y Video Lock or visit eufyofficial.com slash video lock. Again, that's E-U-F-Y Video Lock. Eufy Video Lock. Get complete control over your front door. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. 
it's just a hodgepodge uh, graph uh, where you know there are clusters and right. from a technical standpoint, it's called a, a scale-free uh, architecture where you know there are some larger players and then smaller players and then really tiny players out on the edge. Mm-hmm. But when you're sending money, it depends on you know where you are in the network graph and where the recipient is in the network graph. There's a lot more complexity under the hood with actually getting that value pushed mm. from one side of the graph to the other. Mm-hmm. And so then this is where there's going to be a lot of research and there already has been some. Then the question becomes, how well does the Lightning Network as a protocol, um, how well does it like rebalance itself? Right. Uh, the One of the main reasons from an economic standpoint that the Lightning Network ought to work well is because in a normal economy, money is not just flowing one way. It's flowing, you know, around and around and around. And the way that the Lightning Network works if it's going, you know, around and back and forth in circles, that should be efficient because you're able to keep your channels fairly well balanced. Mm-hmm. But because a channel is a very simple structure where you have value on one end and value on the other end, if a channel gets into a state where it's highly unbalanced and like all the value is on one end, mm-hmm. it becomes less useful because you, you now you can only send value one way rather right. than send value both ways. So there's going to be a lot of work that needs to be done around automatic rebalancing of these channels, both at a micro scale, but also at a macro scale. That's the one thing that is really still up in the air is how is this all going to work at a macro scale and you know we just need to keep growing the network and keep observing it and um, you know as issues are found the the technical folks will need to uh, come up with solutions we heard about the tps limits is there a value limit of transactions right now not as a consensus mechanism uh you know as as i said earlier the the rules on these networks you only need to have you know your direct counterparties to agree with you uh, on on what the rules are so there is a limit that is generally agreed upon right now which is like 0.1 something bitcoin as the total value limit and then i think it's about a quarter of that as the max transaction limit, but that is the sort of default soft limit. There's no technical reason why you can't change that in your own client. There's even something uh, called Wumbo, uh, where you can set Wumbo on your node, which basically means I'm a no limit node. Like I will, I'll accept, yeah, I'll I'll accept anything. I'm super reckless, yada, yada, yada. All right. And so in in general, what I think you're going to see happen is as time goes by and as more of these edge cases are found and, and fixed and we feel more confident in the safety and robustness of the network in general, then you'll see developers say, okay, you know, we'll start to bump these limits up because we feel like it's less likely that people are going to encounter catastrophic scenarios. Uh, So the main reason that they're low right now is because we want, we know there are catastrophic scenarios. Users have lost money um, and we want to limit those losses. Got you. And how does CASA node play into all of this? What is the role that it plays with Lightning Network? What products do you have? Just give us the 101 on that. We are completely new to CASA. Even, Even though there's a CASA node running in the office, I haven't played with it yet <laughs> uh well it should be clear by now this is all very complicated and so well, you're making it you're making it sound <laughs> yeah, pretty easy i mean i kind of get it uh so what we're trying to do is make it easy uh from an operational standpoint <clears throat> and um the downside to these crypto networks is that in order to fully realize their potential and enter into the quote-unquote trustless security model Mm -hmm. where you are completely sovereign unto yourself, Mm -hmm. 
you basically have to become a server administrator. Right. And like asking normal people to become server administrators is not a feasible thing. I mean, right. it requires networking knowledge and IT knowledge and, and time. And, and a lot of people just don't have time to be constantly maintaining a, a mini server that they're running. Right. So we created the Casa Node as this plug and play device, which is, is, is fairly low powered, but we are building a lot of the maintenance logic into our own software. So we have software that is managing the plethora of other services that are running on the device. And so the way that we do that is it's, you know, dockerizing everything. So we're running LND as a lightning node, Bitcoin Core as a Bitcoin node. We're running Tor services. We're running our own dashboard services and then a number of other like middleware and, and uh, sort of update management services. And so all you really need to do is plug your node into power and ethernet and you're off to the races. We've you know had to overcome a lot of different complexities that you encounter when you start having people install devices behind their home routers, a lot of networking issues. Mm -hmm. um, but we've actually found that Tor helps us completely bypass a lot of the networking complexities. Interesting. Um, you no longer have to do like port forwarding. You no longer have to worry about like IP address assignments or uh, or IP address like rotations that can happen. So, so it's running a Bitcoin full node then on that. Mm -hmm. How big is a Bitcoin full node right now in terms of data? As a, a little over 200 gigabytes. Okay, and, so, and how much how much uh, storage is in the Casa node? So we've got a, a terabyte drive on there. It's one of those two and a half inch terabyte drives. Okay. So that'll last for a while. How, how long do you think? <laughs> so, I mean, there, I mean, literally, there is a time limit on that node unless you could upgrade. Is it upgradable? Yeah, well, I think, if I recall correctly, we've kind of settled on shooting for our plug and play node devices to have an expected use time of maybe two years. Okay. At, at which point, you know, we're going to be upgrading people and that's actually one of the things that we changed recently with our business model as we change it to more of a subscription model uh, so that mm. uh, you'd get not only the node, but you also get our key management software and then support services and upgrades, you know, when the new hardware comes out. Mm. Interesting. So I'm, I'm learning a lot from this. So when you're running your node and you said a two year subscription service right now, you buy it plug and play. How do you imagine it's going to turn into a subscription service? And when you're running your node, are you getting paid while you're running your node? And how does that work? And also, how does the node benefit the Lightning Network? Right. So technically, when you are routing through your node, you can collect fees. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a lot of people sort of got a little hyped up about this whole fee collection thing. So it, they thought they're going to make more than they actually are. Yeah, I mean, it is not going to be a highly profitable venture. The fees You're not are retiring. No, the fees are mostly there uh, as a like denial of service prevention, right? Okay. Uh, it, because people are using some resources, you are providing a service, and you don't want someone to just spam you. But okay. you know, where I think the default fee is only like one satoshi for for routing a transaction through your node. Mm -hmm. I, I don't even know what the dollar figure point zero zero is like. You know, a tiny fraction of a cent. Right. And but but that's also that's part of the reason why this is a great thing is because now you can send money uh, orders of magnitude cheaper than you can uh, using on-chain transactions so this is like a, almost like a philanthropic endeavor for somebody to buy a casa node and run it at their house and spend the money on it if you're doing it to help the network yes and that, that's also been the case for you know running bitcoin nodes if you're not directly pointing your own wallets at right, it is right. that you're um, you can almost see it as being analogous to seeding a torrent 
which okay. is a great thing. And, you know, a lot of people seed torrents and they don't actually get financially compensated for it, but they realize that it's an important part of making the whole system work. <laughs> but with torrents, it's one of those things like you have it on your, it's almost like automatic, you know, it's like I already downloaded it. I, right. I, I have it on my computer. So it's just kind of like does it by itself just yep. because I have it. So I guess it's kind of like a forced exchange because I want and you want as well. And so once I get it, somebody else wants it, but I want other things. So it's almost like a forced exchange. Is the Lightning Network kind of like that? Is it a forced exchange? Or is because it sounds like it's just you're running the node and you're just kind of, it's a, it's a one-way transaction because the fees are so small. It is a peer-to-peer -peer network and you have to be connected to at least some peers in order to be able to use it. Mm -hmm. um, and this kind of goes back to the whole liquidity issue. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. One of the things that has cropped up as a, an, an, an issue is like the inbound liquidity problem. So if you spool up a lightning node, uh, nothing really happens by default. You just learn about other nodes, but you can't actually make any payments. In order to make payments, you have to start opening these channels. And by kind of the default is you open channels to other parties, uh, which means you are funding them on your side. It is possible to have dual funded channels theoretically, but there's no real support for that yet. So that means you're opening up these channels where all the, the funding is on your side. So you can make payments. You make payments through those counterparties and then they'll forward it on to other people. Mm. But if you want to receive payments, you need to have someone open a channel to you where the liquidity is on their side and can get pushed to your side. So we are starting to see some services crop up for like inbound liquidity. I think uh, BitRefill has their Thor service, for example. Okay. Kind of going to your question, um, there is you know cooperation that needs to be involved. Like you need to, to have some people offer liquidity if you want to receive money. Gotcha. You've been around for a while. How do you feel about the evolution of the space right now? You know, we've seen this whole ICO boom in, in the end of 2017, beginning of 2018. We see IEOs coming up now. Do you think this is all net positive for the cryptocurrency blockchain industry? Do you think it's all trash? What's your opinion on it? Uh, it's kind of like there's no such thing as, as bad press, right? <laughs> uh, even with all the scams that come out, I mean... Uh, they attract attention, and I imagine that at least some people who learn about the crypto space because of scams will then continue to do research and and hopefully figure out what the differentiators are. You know, it's I, I don't think it can be prevented. So yeah, I just gotta kind of go with the flow. There's gonna continue to be a lot of volatility in the space, and you know, who knows what will cause the next bull cycle and crash? But it's almost inevitable that we're gonna still see uh, a number of cycles and, until we really get to like full market penetration. And what does that look like? What's your vision on what full market penetration would even look like in, in, in our world? Kind of going back to uh, talking about like mainstream adoption of the internet, um, I think that it means that there will be a lot of use cases where uh, you know Bitcoin is getting used and the people don't even know that they're using it. One good example for that is, you know, there's a lot of non-financial applications and uh, it was really cool to see the Microsoft announcement with their uh, decentralized ID project project where they're actually using Bitcoin. You know, they're anchoring into the Bitcoin blockchain, putting a lot more data onto IPFS that there are pointers to. And this is arguably another second layer network that's being layered on top of Bitcoin. But it in and of itself is not that interesting. It becomes interesting then when you think of third layers and applications that start to leverage that. And I would imagine that these applications don't necessarily even need to tell their users that, hey, several layers down, you're actually using Bitcoin on this. It's just like when someone opens up their phone and they're on Facebook or Twitter right. or whatever 
whatever, they have no clue how many complicated technological layers every button they press no, are no going people to. People care if, if it's on uh, AWS or whatever. They don't. They just use it. Yeah, totally. Yeah, definitely makes sense. Going back to how this is all working out, like he asked the question of. ICO, IEOs, all this, you know, like you said, there's no such thing as bad press. Speaking to you for a while and just actually looking at your what you just said um, to previous questions like uh, Pitchfork, Democracy, you like this discourse. You like this conflict. You like this friction in the space. Mm-hmm. You think it's good. Am I correct with that? This is one of the original reasons why I got interested in the, in the space because you know, I read the white paper and... Then I thought about money, which most people never really think about, you know, what is money? How does money work? But once I started looking into how money actually works and I was like, you know, money is this abstract concept that belongs to humanity at large. So shouldn't it be an open source project where anyone who cares enough can contribute and Mm -hmm. voice their opinions? And so I think the, the same is true for any other open platform, any other means of, of creating ways for interacting, whether it's like communication interaction or economic interaction or whatever, uh, you know, it's building this voluntary society. And it's important that uh, everyone can engage in discourse. Though, of course, it gets complicated because voluntary interaction also means freedom of association, which means that no one is obligated to listen or respond to you. Mm-hmm. And that's when some people can get very upset. Right. When's enough enough, man? Look, Bitcoin has forked to different coins. Uh, those different coins have forked into different coins and some people are getting not only really popular really rich when's enough enough when you start looking at bitcoin and like this whole system of especially forks man it's like how do you keep encouraged with that this is a solution for you know money in general because it sucks when somebody forks a bitcoin and all of a sudden calls it bitcoin zebra or whatever mm-hmm. and he starts you know shilling their bitcoin zebra as the new payment solution with you know scalability or whatever the hell because we have you no know, block sizes of 300 gigabytes or whatever the hell they're going to claim and they become rich and then they go away and the coin, the coin fails because of what whatever what what about that discourse i mean what about that friction it's kind of bullshit this is the result i think of there not being much self regulation in the space because it's so new mm-hmm. And, but then and, it goes back to that pitchfork democracy. Yeah. So Well, I'm hopeful that type of thing will not be able to happen in perpetuity because there is this kind of global consciousness, right, of we, we learn from history and from mistakes. And so there will always be scammers and there will always be you know, con men who come up with new approaches, new flavors of uh, tricking people mm. into you know parting ways with their money. Right. But I don't think they're going to be able to keep doing the same thing. And it, we already saw that play out with Bitcoin, right, as we saw, I think, 50 different Bitcoin forks. Mm-hmm. And the first one you know, had a lot of prominent people behind it. And its ideology captured a non-trivial percentage of the existing Bitcoin user base. And then with each subsequent fork, though, it's smaller and smaller and smaller until it basically it's dust. Right. There's a long tail, but it falls off really quickly. Gotcha. And then, you know, you also get into a lot of the the ideology, the sort of questions around, well, we're almost creating something that is it's kind of like a religion or a cult. The reason that the network exists is due to a shared ideology, a shared right. agreement and belief upon a certain set of rules and mostly a certain set of goals, but not necessarily right. sharing the same goals and and then as we go through time we find that there 
are slight rifts in the goals and trade-offs that people agree upon. And when those rifts are significant enough, it's always choice between voice and exit. And some people, especially when they're in the small minority on a certain issue, they eventually realize that voice is not going to get them anywhere. And that's when they exit. And that's what results in forks. The only thing I heard there is Jesus could be Satoshi Nakamoto. (laughs) (laughs) You you said religion. you, You said cults. I know Nye over here, his eyebrows went went up. Love that stuff. I love those conversations. But <laughs> that's so interesting. But I mean, when you say religion and you say cult, I, I see I see blinded following. Just just people following blind. Are people following Bitcoin blind? I mean, I know you said that it is the only sovereign money a little bit ago, the, the only proven solution. That's why you're building these layer two protocols on Bitcoin. At, at some point, even Catholicism with every, let's just look at the Catholic Church and everything that's happening in that. I mean, at some point you just go, something's wrong with that. Yeah. Right. And but people this has a billion Catholics out there. Like when is the point when the cultism and the religion aspect of Bitcoin turn toxic? Um, the specifically, I believe it happens when a large portion of the community is not, you know, doing their own research and rather is only listening to a few trusted. And when figures. do you when, and when do you know that? Does the Catholic Church know that about themselves? I mean, it's not like it's not like you look at yourself and go, hey, I'm the I think that's the main problem. I think it's when be- people become ignorant of the potential downfalls and choose to be ignorant of the potential downfalls rather than looking and saying you know what bitcoin is great in these aspects like catholicism might be great in terms of some ethics and morals where it also has all of these things over here that aren't great same thing with bitcoin like bitcoin's great because of all of these things but i think the community also needs to look at like the negative side of the thing the things that we still not even negative just things we have to improve upon before we can go mainstream and, and actually have like this sound money to everyone that's my opinion there's a lot of very vocal people in the space and some people who have amassed huge followings. I mean, I am one of the people who has amassed huge followings mm-hmm. and I can't prevent it, but I can only hope that people don't blindly believe everything that I say. I try to point people in the right direction. Um, and then sometimes I do make you know claims that uh, should probably be investigated, but... <laughs> there's there's I think the space is a lot more rife with people who make wild claims without any support because they're just trying to, you know, further their own benefit. Right on. Jameson Lab, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. I always love talking to you. Uh, but I have one final question. I don't know if Nye has any more final questions, but my final question is, are you going to grow back out the beard? <laughs> uh, you know, the thing about beard care is that to do it right, it takes a lot of time every mm-hmm. day. It's I mean, you're, you're rocking it there for a while. Yeah, um, but I've become so busy, especially once I stepped into CTO position. Right. And it's not just the time aspect. It's also operational security, uh, where part of operational security is you don't want to stand out in a crowd. So I just I want to look like another regular guy, not uh, someone who is either homeless or is so <laughs> so like enamored with hipster beard care that uh, you know I've got something coming all the way down my chest. Another downside, which nobody tells you about, though, when you have a beard that that long uh, is during the summer you get a really weird pattern uh, on your skin. Oh wow! Uh, okay, it's really weird tan never, lines. You get this, about that. Yeah, no. you <laughs> get a, a V-shaped tan line all the way down. It's uh, Th- that's very funny. odd. So basically, so people can actually tell what time it is by looking at <laughs> <laughs> Look at Jameson's beard. It's five o'clock. <laughs> I love it, man. Thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. It was really good to meet you and really good to pick your brand on all these topics. Thanks, Thanks for Jameson. having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Crypto 101. 
In our next episodes of Crypto 101, we're going to go back to 101 episodes on different projects in the space. We have a huge database of all kinds of interviews with 101s on some of your favorite projects. So I'm excited to start putting those out for you in next episodes. And then after that, we get back to New York Blockchain Week with more great conversations from people that were hanging out with Nine and myself in New York City. I want to say thank you to Randy for editing this episode. And don't forget, join our Facebook community, Crypto 101, and be in a community full of people that want to talk crypto and help beginners get into the space. We'll see you in future episodes of Crypto 101. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.